And the third day there was a marriage of Cana and Galilee, and also Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited and his disciples to the marriage. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we just heard, there's quite the guest list at the wedding in today's gospel. Our Lady, our Lord, and his disciples. Kind of an amazing list. But at every proper Catholic wedding, the exact same guests are there spiritually. They're spiritually present. At every proper Catholic wedding, where the bride and the groom have put Christ and his mother first in their lives where the bride and the groom are striving to live lives of holiness, striving to remain constantly in the state of grace, striving to observe the purity proper for their state in life, striving to live lives of charity and selflessness. At those kind of Catholic weddings, the exact same guests that we see at the wedding in Cana are present, and they're blessing that couple from the very beginning of their married life together. It's really beautiful. But you don't need me to tell you that a lot of what passes for weddings anymore, those guests aren't welcome. They're not even invited. And the marriage situation among Catholics is already so bad, already almost beyond description, when in the past few years a new flaunt attack on marriage came from the least expected of quarters. We're talking about, of course, the attack, actually the various attacks on Catholic marriage that have come from the Holy See itself. We're having a Henry VIII moment uh, right now in the Catholic Church. It's epic. It's an epic disaster. In order to really appreciate the situation, and each one of us as Catholics needs to understand what's going on right now in order to make some sense of what is transpiring with the four cardinals, Cardinal Burke and his companions, in order to really appreciate what's going on right now and why it matters, and it actually really matters, we need to get some perspective. And there's a lot of bad perspective out there, so we're going to make sure that we get some perspective from the teaching of the church. So in order to understand what's going on right now, this drama between the Pope and the four cardinals, over the next four weeks, we'll review some fundamental points of the unchanging and unchangeable Catholic faith. And then, after we've seen the issues, we'll tie it together. So we've got a lot to do and not much time to do it in. So it'll be kind of a high low to the teaching of the church in various areas, and then we'll have the proper context to talk about what's actually going on. So today we'll start with a question and answer format to review some of the basic teachings concerning marriage. I'll start by saying that I'm sorry, but there's no delicate way to approach certain aspects of this topic. I ask for everybody's prayers for anybody that's been hurt by, in any way by what we're going to talk about. If that pertains to anyone here, I already apologize in advance. The thing I'm ultimately concerned about is not so much causing people pain in this life. Um, just uh, I'm going to, in the next, I'm going to assume that people would rather hear painful truths than soothing lies. So. Another point is we're only doing a review of the church teaching. We're not going to do an analysis of the current disaster elsewhere. I've uh, analyzed the current situation on a good number of occasions, and those sermons are readily available elsewhere. So let's get started. Question. What is the most basic fact about marriage? Pope Pius XI teaches, quote, From God comes the very institution of marriage. The purposes for which it was instituted, the laws that govern it, 
the blessings that flow from it. The nature of matrimony is entirely independent of the free will of man. So that if one has once contracted matrimony, he is thereby subject to its divinely made laws and its essential properties. Let it be repeated as an immutable and inviolable fundamental doctrine that marriage was not instituted by God, man but by God. The laws made to strengthen and confirm it and elevate it were not made by man, but by God. And therefore these laws cannot be subject to any human decrees or to any contrary agreement, even of the spouses themselves. This is the doctrine of Holy Scripture. This is the constant tradition of the universal church. This is the solemn definition of the sacred council of Trent. Close quotes, the vicar of Christ. In other words, the most basic fact about marriage is that marriage is what God made it to be. And God, and only God, makes the rules. Not the Pope, not the Cardinals, not the bishops, not the priests, not the deacons, not the laity. God, and only God, makes the rules. That's the most basic fact about marriage. Question, what is marriage? For the sake of time, we'll follow the late, great Frank Sheed quite closely here. Marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. A man and a woman are free to marry or not marry. But if they make the agreement to marry, then God attaches certain consequences to their act. To this particular free choice of a man and a woman, God has attached the consequence that a real relationship comes into being. They have stated their will to be man and wife. God takes them at their word and makes it so. The man and woman make the agreement to marry. God makes the marriage. They are husband and wife by their own consent, but by his act. They're now related to each other closer than a brother to a sister, closer than a father to a son, in a relationship made directly by God. As our Lord stated, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Because their oneness is a God-made thing, man cannot alter it. God alone can bring a marriage into being. God alone lays down the conditions by which it can cease to be. Once this relationship is in being, the parties can't alter the conditions, nor can the state, nor can the church. By God's ordinance, marriage is the lifelong union of a man and a woman for the propagation of the species. Thus, marriage is not terminable, as a contract would be terminable, by the consent of the parties or by the will of the state. From this it follows, that while the parties can separate with the husband going to other women, the wife to other men, they are still husband and wife, because it was God that made them so. Their ignoring of the oneness leaves the oneness untouched. It is beyond their reach, beyond any reach but God's. Similarly, a declaration by the state that the husband and wife are no longer husband and wife, a declaration, that is, of divorce, is a mere form of words. The state can say it has broken the marriage bond between the two people, but it has not broken it. During the lifetime of the parties, they remain husband and wife, because that is the nature of marriage as ordained by God. The failure to understand this teaching of the Catholic Church has given rise to much quite irrelevant argument. 
Those who urge that the church should grant, or at any rate permit divorce, always do so on the ground that in certain cases it is desirable. But to urge that a thing is desirable is no answer to a statement that it is impossible. And that is the precise truth. Marriage, then, is a contract resulting in a relationship. Better still, it is a relationship resulting from a contract. For when the relationship comes into being, the contract has done its work. It has produced the relationship of marriage, and the parties are now governed in their common life, not by the contract which they made, but by the relationship which God made and ratification of their contract. As a practical matter resulting from its God being God-made, marriage is not indissoluble just because the parties at the wedding made vows of lifelong fidelity. It is indissoluble because it is marriage. Thank you, Frank Sheed. Marriage is not indissoluble just because the parties at their wedding made vows of lifelong fidelity. It is indissoluble because it is marriage. Question, what? is the marriage contract. This is the exact contract that a man and woman make in response to which God makes the relationship. Here's the contract. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. Once more, a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the ancient teaching of the church. If this contract is validly made, then God makes the relationship. And if the two partners are baptized, then this relationship made by God is also a sacrament. Both the man and the woman agree to the contract. That's why weddings work the way they do. You have two witnesses to the contract. We usually call them the best man, the maid of honor. The priest is there on behalf of the church. And with respect to this aspect, he's there to make sure that the contract is properly entered into. So what happens? In poetic terms, he asks the groom if he freely agrees to this contract. The groom says, I do. Then he turns in poetic terms to ask the bride if she agrees to this contract. The bride says, I do. What are they saying I do too? And in other words, what are the terms of the contract? The limits, exactly what are they contracting for? They are saying I do to marital rights. Marital rights, which means that they each give and accept rights to acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. In other words, they have just been given not only God's permission, but his actual blessing to use the great creative power. And they may use that great power on the condition first that the acts are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the limit of the rights. No perversities, no contraception, no sterilization. Second, on the condition that the rights are exclusive which means the partner yields this right each exclusively to the other partner, which shows the unity of the relationship, no adultery or polygamy. Third, on the condition that each partner yields these rights perpetually, which shows the indissolubility of the relationship until death do us part, no divorce. Question, what exactly is the purpose of marriage? 
God created marriage as a lifelong union of a man and woman for two specific purposes. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. That's the primary purpose, the procreation and education of children. The secondary uh, purpose of marriage has two aspects, mutual help and a remedy. We'll take a quick look at each of those. First, mutual help and comfort. God intends that man and wife help each other, not simply in household chores and training the children, but especially by mutual love and care for each other. She was your wife before she was the mother of their children. He was your husband before he was the father of the children. You can look for each other first in that. Mutual help. Second, the remedy. Since the fall, marriage is also a remedy for concupiscence. Now that's a $3 word, and it just refers to the appetite which tends towards the gratification of our senses. All that means is that one of the purposes of marriage is a legitimate quieting of the passions. But that has to be understood correctly. The legitimate quieting of the passions is within the boundaries of marriage. It's not simply concerned with the passions. It's also meant to express both the love and intensify the union of the two personalities of the man and wife. So God created marriage for two specific purposes. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage is the mutual help and comfort of the spouses and the remedy for concupiscence. Acts between the spouses are good to the degree they conform to those two purposes of marriage. The general principle is everything in conformity with these two purposes is good and permissible. Anything opposed to them is evil and forbidden. Question. What is the marital duty, sometimes known as the marital debt? By entering into the marriage, each spouse has received rights, as in rights. These rights come from God. That means the other spouse has a corresponding duty before God to accept a reasonable request. That's one of the consequences of saying, I do. This is a serious duty owed in justice to the other spouse. And the right is not just a right to quiet and passions, but a right to a union of the personalities and expression of love, which means that it has to be paid generously or it's not being paid. Furthermore, to refuse a reasonable request to pay the debt, that means a flat-out refusal, not a request for delay. To refuse a reasonable request to pay the debt without a very serious reason is a mortal sin against justice, since it's a violation of the rights of the other spouse, and it's also mortal sin against charity, since because frustrating one's closest neighbor can place that spouse in potential danger of falling. Refusal without a serious reason is a mortal sin against justice and a mortal sin against charity. Question, what are the serious reasons that excuse from honoring the debt? The debt must be refused if there's insufficient privacy or when one partner insists on cooperation in sinful actions like contraception. It may be refused for the following serious reasons. One, when the one request has committed adultery, if it has not already been condoned by the other party. Condoning means that after having learned of the adultery, the innocent person engages in marital affection with the guilty party. So it may be refused when one has, requ has requested has committed adultery if it hasn't already been condoned by the other partner. Two, when the one requesting is not in the right mind, for example, drunk, Three, when there's a real danger of causing miscarriage. Four, when there's grave, grave danger of injuring the other spouse, for example, with a deadly disease. Or five, for up to six weeks after birth. Other questions should be referred to the confessional. Uh, I would only point out that you should be careful who you ask, at least if you want to go to heaven. 
Question, what is the canonical form of marriage and why does that matter? The canonical form of marriage are the requirements. Now these are imposed not by God, but by the church herself, which must be met in order for Catholics to validly contract a marriage, okay? In effect, the church has said to Catholics, you're, if you're free to make this contract, that's fine. But now then, in order to validly make this contract, here are the rules. So the reason why this is so important because it, it concerns the validity of the marriage. An invalid marriage is no marriage at all. So this is serious. It's a salvation issue. Now what we're going to talk about is a canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics. Not the rules for Eastern Catholics. It's stricter there. You know, so the Eastern, the Eastern side of the church has different rules. And, and we're just going to talk about the ones imposed on the Latin Catholics. I mean, we know their rules are different. You should know that. Try, try their Lent or Advent, okay? We're going to be looking at the canonical form of marriage for Latin Catholics. It's also important to realize that if neither party is Catholic, it doesn't pertain to them. They're not bound to this form. So if, if a Protestant marries another Protestant, this doesn't pertain to them. They could get married in their church. They could get married to the Justice of the Peace, so forth. This only pertains when at least one of the parties is a Catholic. We're only talking about Latin Catholics, right? now. Okay. The canonical form of marriage can be found in the new code of canon law, uh, and I'll just read from that. I'll read the code of canon law. Only those marriages are valid, which are contracted in the presence of the local ordinary, that's the bishop of the diocese, only those marriages are valid which are contracted in the presence of the local ordinary or parish priest, or the priest or the deacon delegated by either of them, who in the presence of the two witnesses assists. Okay, so the canonical form of marriage means in order for a marriage to be valid, or at least one of the parties is Catholic, it must be contracted in the presence of two witnesses and also assisted at by the local bishop, the parish priest, or a priest or deacon with delegation from the local bishop or parish priest. We're not talking about the instance, you know, on some desert island somewhere, but with other than that, that kind of thing. The basic idea here is if you're Catholic, the church requires you to have a Catholic wedding for validity. Now, we all remember the sixth precept of the church from our catechism when we were little, but we might not understood why that was important. We're required to observe the marriage laws of the church. Why is it important? To make sure that the marriage is valid. So suppose a couple, at least one of which is Catholic, tries to go into justice of the peace at a ding-dong wedding bell chapel or something to get married. They go in as boyfriend and girlfriend, and they leave as boyfriend and girlfriend. They won't get married because they can't get married. They can go through this ceremony a hundred times in a row. Nothing happens. It isn't possible. It's totally impossible, thanks to the Council of Trent. Let's take a different case. Now listen carefully in this case. Suppose a Catholic guy wants to marry a Protestant girl and it's going to cause World War III and family problems if she doesn't get married at her dad's church because her dad's the preacher down at the first church of what's happening now right now. Okay? So now, if they just go in there and stand up before her dad and everything, go through the whole ceremony, it's just like the ding-dong chapel. Nothing happens. Okay? If they just do that. They came in as boyfriend and girlfriend and they're going to leave as boyfriend and girlfriend. Thank you to the Council of Trent. Is there any solution for a couple like that problem? In this case, there is. The bishop has the power in individual cases to release a couple from the requirement of having a Catholic priest or deacon with delegation witness the marriage. And if because of this grave family problem, the bishop releases this particular couple, then it actually would be a valid marriage. 
It's called a dispensation from form. It's pretty common. They come in, they have a good reason, and then the priest in, in, in submits the, the request to the bishop, and then it comes back from the chancery. That's how it works, because the priest can't do it. It has to come from the bishop, and he can release it. This is, a, this is the power a bishop has, okay? So, since the church established these particular rules, this, what the boundaries are for validity, and they established it at the Council of Trent. Incidentally, the reason they established it is because God, it was immortal sin, but you could run away with your best friend and decide we're going to be married, and you'd elope and you'd be married. But then, there's no record of it in a church anywhere. You come back, you decide, I'm going to trade her in on a new model. So you just dump her, and you have a, a, a wedding in church, and there's your wife with the kids going, that's my husband. No proof. So the Council of Trent finally said, alright, that's it. And that's why we have these rules like this, to protect the women and the children. That's exact. So it's been imposed by the Council of Trent to protect women and children. Okay, so if a Catholic tries to contract a marriage done at the First Church of what's happening now, but he doesn't have a dispensation, then he doesn't get married. Okay, but if he does have a dispensation from the bishop, then he did get married. So everything being the same, no dispensation, no marriage. If you have a dispensation, there is a marriage. Okay, now, what are we saying? We're saying that if a Catholic doesn't observe the canonical form of marriage and doesn't have a bishop's dispensation, then the person can't validly contract marriage. And it doesn't matter if they're aware of it or not. It doesn't matter whether the couple is aware of the fact or not. Marriage is what it is. The couple may not be guilty of anything. They may be innocently unaware of the teaching of the church. They drive to Reno. But they're living, we're living in crazy times. Good intentions don't change the situation. Good intentions can't change the situation. Marriage is what it is, which means that if a Catholic doesn't observe the canonical form of marriage, he can't validly contract marriage. If he doesn't know, they don't know, then there's no sin. We have to know something's wrong in order to sin. So if there's ignorance, there's no sin, but it's still not a marriage. I'm sorry to have to point this out, but I'm going into some detail because this is actually a real problem in traditional circles. It's a real problem. It's quite common for so-called traditionalists to dissent from the Council of Trent. There's any number of self-serving explanations for why it's okay in their particular case to dissent from the Council of Trent. And there's all this stuff. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of legalistic gobbledygook trying to justify a thoroughly immoral practice that on the one hand ends up completely denying traditionally young couples the absolutely, absolutely necessary sacramental grace of matrimony. And on the other hand, since they're living together without the benefit of the sacrament, it puts them in very great peril of eternal damnation. And it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon at all to get the exact same kind of reaction when you tell Tradies this information than when you tell a couple that's contracepting the truth about their situation. The liberals aren't the only ones in the church that have problems, real problems with the truth about marriage. Not happy about it, but that's how it is. Question, is it ever permitted for a married couple to separate? Yes. So what are the rules which govern such regrettable situations? In order to be clear as possible, show I'm not making this up, I'll just do a bunch of cut and pasted quotes from various commentaries on marriage and canon law. Starting with Canon 1141 from the 1983 Code of Canon Law, the Code of Canon Law that governs us right now. A marriage which is ratified and consummated. Ratified means that they validly exchanged the vows. Consummated means a marital act has taken place sometime after the exchange of the vows. A marriage which is ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved 
by any human power, by any cause, other than death. This doctrine must be accepted on faith as part of the official teaching of the church herself. Close quote. Quote, what are the obligations that flow from this indissolubility? Because the marriage makes the spouses two in one flesh, they must share a common life. Canon law determines spouses have the obligation and the right to maintain their common conjugal life unless a lawful reason excuses them. This means they must share a common bed, board, and dwelling. Close quote. Quote, there are four lawful causes for legal separation. One, adultery. Two, serious bodily harm inflicted on the spouse of the children. Three, serious spiritual harm to the other spouse of the children. Four, desertion. So the four legal causes for legal separation are adultery, serious bodily harm inflicted upon the spouse of the children, serious spiritual harm to the other spouse of children, and desertion. We'll explain them in slightly more detail. We'll start with adultery. Quote, Adultery constitutes an act against the very nature of marriage by which the spouse become one flesh and is an injury to the innocent spouse. Consequently, there is sufficient ground for permanent separation, which, however, is not recommended. Furthermore, permanent separation requires the approval of the competent ecclesiastical authority. Close quote. We'll get to the authority here in a while. Now, since the sin of adultery has a much broader meaning than the legal definition, let's make sure we have a clear idea of the legal definition. Okay, in order for adultery to be a canonical cause for separation, what we're talking about here legally, it quote, first, it must be consciously committed and formally consummated. Gravely unchaste, unchaste acts other than the marital act do not fit the legal definition. Second, there must be moral certitude that the adultery took place. Third, the other spouse must not have consented. Fourth, the other spouse must not have been responsible for it, for example, by desertion or frequent unreasonable denial of marital rights. Fifth, the adultery must not be mutual. And sixth, the adultery must not be condoned in any way. We talked about that. There's condemnation tacitly when the innocent party, knowing of the adultery, has freely continued to treat the guilty one with marital affection. Okay. So, for it to be a lawful cause, it has to be consciously committed uh, and formally consummated. Moral certainty it took place. Other spouse must not have consented. Other spouse must not have been responsible. Other spouse must not have committed adultery themselves. And it must not have been condoned. One last detail. Although the innocent party has the right to separate on his own authority, he is required, or she, within six months of that separation, to initiate procedures to have the separation formalized. That has that in canon law. I won't read that. Now, other, uh, other lawful causes. Serious bodily harm, uh, serious spiritual harm, desertion. Canon law states these are causes for temporary separation. And when the situation is such, there would be a danger and delay that the spouse may separate under his own authority. And that, quote, when the reason for the separation ceases to exist, conjugal living is to be restored unless ecclesiastical authority decides otherwise. Basically, when the reason for the separation ends, then separation has to end. Okay. Ecclesiastical authority. This is part of the law of the church. Who is the competent authority to authorize the legal separation of spouses? Canon 1692 answers it. I'm just going to read from a commentary. The authorization to separate is an act of jurisdiction reserved to the diocesan bishop. Neither pastors nor priests nor those employed by diocesan agencies as marriage councils or other such capacities may authorize the separation of spouses, not even temporarily, under the guise of pastoral professional counseling. Okay, that's the teaching of the church. Now having said that one, I highly doubt that there's a bishop in these United States that would do his duty in this matter. The current disaster didn't come from outer space. 
It's been brewing for some time. We need to pray. We need to really pray for our bishops. We continue. Quote, if the decisions of the ecclesiastical authority are not recognized by civil law, which certainly would be the case here, the bishops decide something that wouldn't have anything to do with the state laws. The local bishop may authorize spouses to present their separation cases to a civil court, but this authorization should never be granted if it is foreseeable that the civil court will decide in a manner that is contrary to divine law. As the legislations of the states favor divorce rather than separation, by not providing sufficient protection to the legitimate interests of the parties seeking only a separation, the recourse to the civil courts raises grave pastoral moral problems. Well, that's obvious to anyone with eyes to see the, the, the problems. You know, our society is falling apart because marriages are falling apart. Question, what effect does divorce have on, on marriage? None whatsoever. None. 1983 Code of Canon Law. A marriage which is ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved by any human power, any cause other than death. Once a marriage has been consummated, only a separation is possible. The term divorce has absolutely no meaning in the context of marriage and can only be properly understood as a legal way of separating property, not spouses. Whether or not they're separated, whether or not they have a legal divorce, they remain married until death, period. Close the book. Again, I'll read from Frank Sheep. By God's ordinance, marriage is a lifelong union of a man and a woman for the propagation of the species. Thus, marriage is not terminable, as a contract would be terminable, by the consent of the parties or by the will of the state. From this it follows that while the parties can separate with the husband going to other women, the wife to other men, they are still husband and wife because it was God that made them so. Their ignoring of the oneness leaves the oneness untouched. It's beyond their reach, beyond anyone's reach but God's. Similarly, a declaration by the state that a husband and wife are no longer husband and wife, a declaration that is of divorce, is a mere form of words. The state can say it's broken the marriage bond between the two people, but it's not broken it. During the lifetime of the parties, they remain husband and wife because that is the nature of marriage as ordained by God. The failure to understand this teaching of the Catholic Church has given much rise to quite irrelevant argument. Those who urge the Church should grant, or at any rate permit divorce, always do so on the ground that in certain cases it's desirable. But to urge that a thing is desirable is no answer to a statement that is impossible. And that is the precise truth. Thus Frank Sheep. Obviously then, there's an immediate conclusion. No one can date a divorced person. Why? Because they're married to their spouse. Question, what is an annulment? The first thing to understand about annulment is it addresses one and only one question. Was the marriage contract validly made? In other words, an annulment only pertains to a very specific point in time. An annulment only addresses one particular moment in time. An annulment only addresses the very moment of the exchange of vows. And it answers the question, was the contract validly made? That's it. Why is this important? Because as we heard, marriage is a relationship that results from a contract. So if the contract isn't validly made, then the relationship doesn't come into being. Marriage is a relationship that results from a contract, and if the contract isn't validly made, then the marriage, the relationship, doesn't come into being. There's a lot of confusion about this right now because people don't understand it, and I'm not only talking about priests right now. 
So what is an annulment? An annulment is a finding by a tribunal. A tribunal is a church court. It's one of the in the church's legal system, it's one of the courts. An annulment is a finding by a tribunal that a marriage never came into being because the marriage contract was not validly made. Perhaps one or both spouses were too young to contract for marriage at the time of the exchange of vows. Perhaps one spouse was permanently impotent at the time of the exchange of vows. Perhaps one spouse was not free to marry because he's already married at the time of exchange of vows, etc., etc. We're not going to go through all the personal possible reasons, and we're certainly not going to touch on the scandalous situation here in the States. As we say, we're only covering some of the teaching of the church here in the time we have. The point is, properly understood, is that annulment is a finding by a tribunal that a marriage never came into being because a marriage contract was not validly made. Okay. So, we've gone through all that in a high low. Before we close, we'll have a very quick review. What have we seen? We've seen that the most basic fact about marriage is that marriage is made by God, and that consequently that means that God and only God makes the rules. We've seen that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. We've seen that in the marriage contract, a man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. We've seen that God created marriage for two specific purposes. The primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The secondary purpose of marriage is the mutual help and comfort of spouses and remedy for concupiscence. We've seen that by entering into marriage, each spouse has received rights which come from God. And that means the other spouse has a corresponding duty before God to accept a reasonable request and to refuse a reasonable request to pay the debt without a very serious reason is a mortal sin against justice and a mortal sin against charity. We've seen that debt must be refused if there's insufficient privacy when partner insists on cooperation in sinful acts such as contraception. We've seen that it may be refused when one has committed, one has requested has committed adultery if it hasn't already been condoned by the other partner, when the one requesting is not in the right mind, for example, they're drunk, when there's real danger of causing miscarriage, when there's real danger of injuring the other spouse, and for up to six weeks after birth. We've seen in order to be valid, the marriage of one or more Catholics must be contracted in the presence of two witnesses and also assisted at, either by the local bishop or the parish priest or a priest or deacon with delegation from the local bishop or the parish priest. We've seen that the four lawful causes for legal separation are adultery, serious bodily harm inflicted on the spouse or the children, serious spiritual harm to the other spouse or children, and desertion. We've seen that divorce has absolutely no effect whatsoever on marriage. It's a mere form of words which only, at best only legally divides up property of a couple who nonetheless remain married. And that no one can date a divorced person simply because they are still married. And we've seen an annulment as a finding by tribunal that marriage never came into being because the marriage contract was not validly made. Let's close. The bishops have fought the death penalty in the courts and legislatures. In spite of the simple fact that the application of the death penalty is an issue over which even faithful Catholics may have a difference of opinion. But the bishops have apparently abandoned the faithful. Whilst they're fighting something that we could have a difference of opinion, they've apparently abandoned the faithful to divorce courts without so much as a fight. And the carnage is incalculable. Had they been preaching in season and out of season that a marriage which is ratified and consummated cannot be dissolved by any human power or any other cause but death. 
Had they been preaching in season, out of season, in a clear and unambiguous manner that Christ's teaching with regard to marriage, the beauty of the vocation, that it's a call to holiness for a man and his wife that requires embracing a cross. Had they been teaching in a clear and unambiguous manner, unambiguous manner, the tough teachings, no divorce, the actual grounds for legal separations, the parameters of the marital act, the contraception is intrinsically evil, then we'd have far, far more babies in the world. Far, far more happiness in the world. Far, far more holiness in the world. Far, far more vocations in the world. Both to priesthood, religious life, and marriage. Far, far more married people being saved. We'd have all that and more. And we wouldn't have these nightmarish perversions being called marriages. We wouldn't have all this horrific emotional and cultural wreckage from so many destroyed families, so many destroyed lives. Most importantly, we wouldn't have what appears to be the eternal loss of so many immortal souls. We wouldn't have what appears to be the damnation of so many souls. We need to pray. We need to pray and we need to act. In August of 1917, Our Lady of Fatima appeared to the children. Sister Lucia explains, quote, looking very sad. Our Lady said, pray. Pray very much and make sacrifice for sinners. For many souls go to hell. Because there are none to sacrifice themselves and to pray for them. Close quote. Let that not be said of us. We all know people that are struggling in their marriage. It's hard. Near impossible for some couples in our divorce culture it makes so much pressure to break up even worse. Since the courts aren't going to help them, legislatures aren't going to help them, the executive branch isn't going to help them, our bishops don't show any signs of helping them, then we have to help them. We have to help them with our prayers, with our sacrifices, with our encouragement. Many souls go to hell because they're none to sacrifice themselves and pray for them. Many souls. Many souls.